And for our church, our directional statement as a church is that we exist to connect the disconnected to Christ, his church, and his cause. Uh, at the very core of that uh, is, is life groups in our church. And this Sunday uh, is kind of uh, the kickoff to uh, New Year with the start of school to our life groups and our, our kids have promoted. Uh, but I also want to just say to you, if that is not something you've been involved in, we believe it is, it is critical in what we're about as a church and how you grow and uh, you progress in your Christian life. So I would encourage you, if you haven't been a part of a life group, uh, if you'll just come to the long hallway uh, next Sunday morning, it starts at 9.30 and we'll find you a group. And we're kind of, uh, we're open. So you can maybe try out a group or two. Uh, and uh, we would love for you to be a part. We believe it's, it's critical in not only connecting to the church, but also connecting uh, to Christ as we study God's Word, as we develop relationships, as we care for one another in life groups. So I hope that you will, if you haven't been doing that, that you'll be a part of our life group next Sunday. Hey, so this Sunday I want to uh, kick off also uh, the fall sermon series, which will be from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. So if you're freaking out and you're thinking, man, it's been a long time since I learned the books of the Bible, uh, Zechariah, the great thing about Zechariah is, is it is the next to last book in the Old Testament. The last book is going to be Malachi. So if you just go one book back from Malachi, you're going to find Zechariah. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of Zechariah, obviously of chapter one, and just beginning to talk about what it is that God would say to us from the book of, book of Zechariah. Because quite honestly, I think last Sunday when I introduced Zechariah, I just kind of my reflexes said, okay, some of y'all didn't see that coming. It's like, wow, of all things, Zechariah. And you're thinking, what do I even know about Zechariah? Uh, it's something that God has led me to. As your pastor, I believe that uh, God this fall and the next three months will speak powerfully to us uh, from Zechariah. And uh, I have titled these sermons uh, The Glory in Small Things. The Glory in Small Things. And obviously I'm going to be describing what I mean by that in the weeks to come. Um, but I'm excited about it and as I said, we're going to be looking at the opening statement that Zechariah makes in his book. And I, I want to describe this to us um, in this way, because I really, I think you need a framework about what the book is about and what it is. What in the world would God speak to us from something that was written 2,500 years ago? But as I have uh, gone through the book in the weeks previous to this, uh, I believe the book is going to show us how God takes our obedience in the present and projects that out into the future and even amplifies it in the future for his glory. The small things is going to be our, our obedience. Uh, but I want us to see from the book of Zechariah how God takes uh, 
the small things of our obedience in the present and he projects that out and even amplifies it into the future for his glory and I think we're going to see something very significant in the book of Zechariah now to understand the book of Zechariah we have to understand the context and so this morning I want to lay some historical groundwork and some of you your eyes are going to start to glaze over particularly of those of you who went back for seconds on the breakfast casserole and you ate three biscuits uh, you're really feeling groggy right now and I hope that you can push through as I push through uh, the sermon uh, but the only way to understand Zechariah and what it would possibly say to us 2,500 years later is to understand the situation, the historical context in which Zechariah was speaking. And what we're going to see, if you'll hang with me this morning for a few minutes, uh, we're going to see that, wait a second, uh, that's a circumstance that maybe I find myself in or I have found myself in or I will find myself in and whatever God spoke to them in the midst of their context is it possible that God could also speak to me in the midst of my context 2,500 years later uh, the short of it is that Zechariah prophesied starting in the year 520 and I know for most of you that means nothing but just put a pin right there at 520. But to understand 520, you have to back up the story. Um, in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God calls a man by the name of Abram. And God, this is significant, God makes a covenant with Abram, who becomes Abraham. A covenant. He makes a contract. There's the God's side of it, there's the Abram's side of it. And God said to Abram, if, if you will give your life, your allegiance, your faithfulness to me, then I'm going to do these things. I'm going to make your descendants plentiful, like the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm also going to bless you. And the blessing is going to be so great, and we will see this later in the book of Zechariah, that it will not only be a blessing for your family, but it will be a blessing that stretches to all the families of the world. So um, God began to fulfill his promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and his descendants become great. And in the course of time, several generations, they go to Egypt, and they are in Egypt for 430 years. God miraculously delivers them and he takes them to the land. There's already the plentiful number of people, but finally God takes them to the land, a place we call the promised land. He gives them a land and he sets up a kingdom there. And over the course of, of hundreds of years, he establishes a kingdom there, kings like David and Solomon. And very significant to the story is eventually not only the capital of that kingdom is Jerusalem, but the place of worship becomes Jerusalem, and a glorious temple is built uh, for the worship of their God. But in the course of time, the hearts of God's people began to turn away from Him. 
And God begins to send people like Zechariah, the prophets, who began to say to them, turn back to God. Turn back to God. And God was so patient as he sent prophet after prophet. But the ten northern tribes finally experience the discipline of God and they are taken into captivity in the year 722. But God still has the two southern tribes which are kind of consolidated in Judah. And prophet after prophet, God says, turn back, turn back. The implication is if you don't turn back, God will bring his discipline upon you. But in the course of time, starting in about 609, God sends the first wave of his discipline at the hand of the Babylonians. And the first group, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're taken off into Babylon. And then there's another wave. But God's people still don't turn back to him. And finally, this is a significant date, in 587, as a final statement of God's discipline on his people, the Babylonians come and they level the city of Jerusalem, including the temple, which is destroyed. And they scatter all the people. It's over. The destruction of Jerusalem in 587 is the most catastrophic event in all of the, in all of the Old Testament. It is the worst of the worst. I don't, we can't even put ourselves there to understand how catastrophic that event, that the city, their capital, and the temple was destroyed and the people were scattered. Do you understand that God in his covenant had said to Abram, Abraham and his descendants, I will give you many people, I will give you a land, and I will bless you. Do you understand that when the discipline of God comes, what does he remove from them? The people are scattered, the land is lost, and the hand of God's blessing is lifted off of them. And so... The city is destroyed. They go into captivity. Uh, There's a little glimmer of hope in the prophet Jeremiah who'd warned them to turn back to God. Jeremiah prophesied in 70 years, 70 years, God will restore what? The people, the land, and the blessing. Um, historically the story picks up and I know we're going to be looking uh, in Zechariah but in the book of Ezra God's hand moves in the man a king by the name of Cyrus because the Persians overtake the Babylonian Empire And in Ezra 1, this is the history of these 70 years. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 538, 538, not quite 70 years have passed. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, in, in Judah, I'm sorry. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. 538, the proclamation of Cyrus, sends the Jews back with his blessing to rebuild the temple. In 536, that there's about 50,000 of them in, in Ezra, the, the heads of the families are written down as a genealogy of those that God led to go back. But about 50,000 of them, including many of the priests. Um, and they began in 536 to begin to rebuild the temple. But they start by building. This is, this is significant, I believe, what God is going to say to us in Zechariah. They first build the altar of sacrifice. I almost in, in my mind, the picture is they clear the rubble away on the Temple Mount, that place where the Holy of Holies has been, and they build the altar of sacrifice, and they began in 536 to sacrifice again to God. They also, if you read in, in Ezra chapter 3, they, they lay the foundation. So you've got to get this mental picture. In fact, that, there's a reason I asked Will to read what he read because there's a spiritual connection with us. So in 536 till about 534, they, they clear off and they set those foundation stones and they have an altar of sacrifice. But get this, there, there's no building. There's the foundation, it's cleared off, and there's the altar of sacrifice. And that's where they get to in, in 534. And here it is, when you read the book of Ezra. At this point in 534, for the Jews who have gone back, Life happens. Now, this is, this is going to connect with us. <laughs> They've been called back by God to rebuild the temple, and they started with great enthusiasm. But within two years, well, life begins to happen. And politics within the kingdom changes. The people of the land began to oppose them. And y'all aren't going to believe this. There was an economic downturn about this time. And what Ezra records in Ezra 3 is the people stopped the building of the temple. You've got to get that. And for 14 years, they... They manage their own lives. You got to get that. What were they doing for 14 years? Well, we were just managing. 
our own lives. Uh, in, in Ezra 4, 24, it says this. It says, thus the work of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, ceased, and it discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which brings us to the year 520. Fourteen years have passed. They've just been managing their own lives. And in Ezra 5, verse 1, it says, <laughs> this is going to bring us to Zechariah, obviously. It says, so this is the next verse from 424 that says they've ceased the work. It says, then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So, verse 2, so Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. And then finally, if you go to chapter 6 of Ezra, verse 14, it says, So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, now, the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, which is the year 516. For the next three months, you've got to get this mental picture of the year 520. And for 14 years, they had not done what God called them to do because life happened. And all there is to what God told them to do was a foundation that was laid and an altar of sacrifice. And they're making sacrifice to God. The, the temple sacrifices were going on, yes. And they were managing their lives for 14 years until the year 520. And God says, in his mercy and grace, and we'll see this, is that I am going to open the windows of heaven and I am going to speak to them through two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to the circumstances in which they find themselves. And that is the context. You've, you've got to get that context. For 14 years, they have put God's work on the back burner and there comes a word from heaven to speak to them in the midst of that and that is not only the context for Haggai but it's also uh, for the next three months will be the context for Zechariah now before I read my text and say a few things this morning in this opening sermon, uh, I need you and I need myself to think about our own lives. 
There's a reason that God has brought us this fall to the book of Zechariah. Um, and it really applies to the concepts that Will read in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6. And the Bible begins to describe, at least in Paul's writings, that our lives are like a building that are being built. And there was a foundation that was laid in Jesus Christ. In fact, there is a sacrifice that's on that foundation that is in the cross. And when we are saved, there is a, there is a foundation laid that Paul says even when it passes through the fire, if there's nothing of the structure above that that lasts, that foundation will stand. Why? Because the altar of sacrifice that was in the cross and what Jesus Christ did and he saved us. Amen? The foundation is sure. But Paul goes on to say, or do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Peter would continue this thought of how we are being built up uh, as stones. And I want you to get this picture that for many of us, and I, I don't know where you are in your journey, but you need to take the mental picture of the historical context of Zechariah. And you need to say in the same way Jesus Christ, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, and when, when you trusted your life to Jesus Christ, your eternity, yes, was sealed through the, through the altar of sacrifice that was on the cross when the, the once-for-all sacrifice was made by the Son of God on Calvary uh, 500 years after Zechariah prophesied. He'll talk about it later in his book. Um... And the foundation was laid. Uh, but there's something more to the Christian life. There is something that God wants to build upon that foundation. Is the altar there? Sure, the altar is there. Is there a foundation? Yes. Does that ever change? Never does. And in fact, what happens in salvation is God makes a covenant with us. He makes a covenant with us. And our, our side of the covenant is, God, we will love you with all of our hearts and we will be completely uh, faithful. Our, our full allegiance is with you. And God, in his mercy, saves us, establishes that foundation. And then this is what God says. Now we are in a joint venture of building on that foundation. Something, a life, that will bring glory to me. I don't know where everybody is today, but most of us are there. Whether it was last year that you were saved, whether it was 40 years ago, oh my, I'm approaching 50, Brother Sammy, I'm sorry. 50 years ago, <clears throat> um, my foundation is secure in Jesus Christ through the altar of sacrifice. 
But God said, I want to build something. And it's not really about you, Daryl Smith. It's about my glory. And I think sometimes in our Christian life, we, we set the building on the back burner. Maybe we even depend upon our theology that says, well, the foundation is sure. The altar. Nothing will ever change. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you sweet little Baptist person, you're exactly right. But God said there's more. Because I want to build something. I want to build something in your life that brings me glory. And I think God in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, he said, why don't y'all just after 14 years, why don't y'all just go up on the temple mount and why don't you look and see what's there and say, ask the question, does that glorify God? And Haggai would really say, you've got time to do all your personal business, but you don't have time for God's business. Does that glorify God? And so I, as we look at just, for just a few moments at these opening verses of Zechariah, I, I want you to get the mental picture of the historical context. Do you have that? 520, foundation, but 14 years. They've been, life has happened. And I want you to get this mental picture of your own life, your own spiritual life, if you're a child of God, of that foundation, the altar of sacrifice, yes. And the question is, what is God doing? The challenge in Zechariah that we'll begin to see today is that God calls you to obedience, maybe even in small things. And know that if you will be obedient in the small things, that God will project that out into the future and even amplify it for his glory. Um, Zechariah 1 we must you must listen quickly from this point forward of the sermon Zechariah 1 the first six verses it says in the eighth month of the second year of Darius the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the son of Berechiah the son of Ido the prophet saying the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds so he has dealt with us in verse 1 
The year 520 is dated by the dates of a Persian king, Darius. Do you understand as you read the Old Testament in the histories, they always date the dates by the Jewish kings. Do you understand what a slam this is? There is no Jewish king to date this to. This is in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, who is the Persian king. Um, Zechariah's lineage is given the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido. We know from the book of Zechariah that Ido was a priest that came back from Babylon. His grandfather surely as a priest would have seen the old temple. His grandfather would have been taken into captivity, into exile. No, he knew what it used to be. But they had been taken and now there's a father and now there's a son. And in the course of time, Zechariah, who would have been born in Babylon, comes back to the place that he had only heard of from his grandfather. The point of his opening words in Zechariah is that they would learn the lesson of their fathers. The term fathers is used four times in this section of Scripture. And so he says in verse 2, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Um, when you read 4 through 6, he describes that their fathers had turned away from God. When, when the admonition, and we're going to come back and we're going to end with verse 3, when he says return, it denotes that you've turned away. And he, just, he uses that same imagery of their fathers. Their fathers had turned away. And God had sent the prophets. I, you've got to see this message. That for decades, God had sent prophet after prophet to say, turn, turn back, turn back. Because God knew if they didn't turn back, he would, his only recourse was to bring discipline to his people. But God in his mercy and grace, it wasn't when, they, when their heart first turned that, that God sent his discipline. No, it was decade after decade after decade, prophet after prophet after prophet. But finally they wouldn't. In fact, he describes in verse 6 or verse 5, after God's discipline, they returned. And the point that Zechariah is making in learning the lesson of your fathers, don't wait until God disciplines you to return. Return now, before the discipline comes. And so he comes to verse 3. And he says, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, I don't have time this morning. Uh, it's odd to me in verse 3 that when God describes himself three times, he says, I am the Lord of hosts. Oh, I don't have time, but I'm telling you, uh, this is who God calls himself. And the host refer, uh, the simplest way for me to describe it is the heavenly army, the host of heaven. And it's, it's part of the, uh, the curtain being pulled back between eternity 
and earth. God says, I am the Lord of hosts. Uh, oh, there's something, and we'll begin to see it next week, that the curtain's going to be pulled back, and God's going to say, there is something going on in the heavenlies that you don't realize in the earthlies. Earthlies isn't even a word, but anyhow. Uh, in fact, that's the ministry of the prophet, to speak for God as he pulls back the veil and says, I have something I need to say. And starting next week, he's going to begin to show him something. There is something going on. I am the Lord of the host of the heavenly army. But the admonition of the prophet is returned to me. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a jab here that he says, you've returned to the land. It's, it's not enough. I don't need you to return to the land. I need you to re return to me. Why did the fathers get in trouble? Because they turned away from God. And, and Zachariah says, no, you have to return to me. It is, it is a statement of the personal dynamic between God's people. It's this covenant idea of between me and God. I don't need you to, in fact, I think God would even say, I don't even need you to build me a building. I need you to return to me. The building will take care of itself. But your heart, your heart is not in the right place. I need you to return to me. It was about their spiritual life. It was about their personal relationship with their covenant God. It was about their allegiance to God. They had their hearts were turning away, and the prophet comes to say, your hearts have turned away. And I need you to begin to take the small steps. Do you understand? It's not so much how fast we're traveling. It's the direction in which we are traveling. And they had turned away from God. And the prophet just says, I just need you to turn. And to begin to take steps to return to me. You're headed in the wrong direction. Turn and come back to me. And there's something, and I want to end with this. There's something in that statement when God says, if you will return to me, I will return to you. What would that mean in the covenant relationship? It would be about people. It would be about the land. And I think most significantly, it would be about the hand of blessing that God would lay on his people. What would God do if he returned to his people? And actually, Zechariah, more so than Haggai, is going to begin to detail that in the next 13 and a half chapters. What would God do if his people returned to him? And, and the word I have chosen to describe that is in my sermon series title, Glory. The point... is that if you will return to me and you will begin to do the small things of returning to me,
God said, I will do something glorious through you that will be beyond the temple. I don't, you can, I'm not going to ask you not to read the book of Zechariah so that you know how it turns out. You know, <laughs> just read it. Uh, we're going to have to study it. But at the starting point, Zechariah identifies where they are. But he says you have to learn the lesson of history. And here it is, that there are consequences to our choices. In these words, Zechariah is communicating to his people that there are consequences to our choices. Here it is, listen to me. Disobedience. Disobedience leads to God's discipline. God never forsakes us. Did God walk away from the Jews? No. Did he discipline them? Was it in a catastrophic way? Yes, it was. But God said, after 70 years, I'm going to restore you. And God begins to speak through Haggai and Zechariah. I have something glorious I want to do. But I'm needing you to turn towards me, and I need you to begin to be obedient. But you have to understand that disobedience leads to discipline. And obviously, there's a motivating factor in there. But actually, it's not after these first six verses... Zechariah does not look to the past. He looks to the present. He looks to the future. And, and the fear of discipline is not the motivating factor that, Zachar- that God uses to speak to his people. It is about the glory. Yes, disobedience leads to discipline. But also, if we make the choice to be obedient, there is a glory that God will bring that you cannot imagine. And Zechariah will begin to show that as this book unfolds. And so understand in our present situation, in the positive sense moving forward, that God takes our present obedience and He projects it out and even amplifies it into the future. Because not only did God make a covenant with the Jewish people, But God in Jesus Christ made a covenant with us. And God said, I laid the foundation. The altar is there. But I need you to join me. Because there is something I want to build in your life. That if you project it out, there is something that God wants to do of a glorious nature that is so much grander than what you would consider my obedience in small things. Amen. Amen. Let me pray this morning. Father, today we, uh, uh, we thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, and Father, I pray that uh, we wouldn't stop our experience with Jesus at that point. But Father, I pray this fall as we look at your word through the prophet Zechariah that you would speak to us in our own circumstances. Father, and Father, I pray that we would take the small steps of obedience in the days forward so that Father, not only in our time but in the generations that follow us, that Father, you would do something beyond what we could ever imagine. 
So, Father, we pray for obedience in all that we do. And, Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.